If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, just kind of keep your thumb there. Last week, we started our Advent series, our Advent month, with, with a theme, God with us, as you can see on the screen, which perhaps, if that's all you had to study in your life, to try to plumb the depths of the meaning of God with us, there, I don't know of too many phrases that are as powerful as saying that God came close to man. And we could spend a lot, a lot of time looking at it. We're, we're actually committed this month to talking about it. Last week, Tyler gave us a perspective of God with us as Savior or Rescuer. Today, what I want to do is kind of present him as God with us as Father, who he is as a Father. There are so many ways we experience the fatherhood of God, and they are wonderful. In fact, when I was starting this kind of message, I sat down and just wrote everything that came to my mind quickly on how I experienced the fatherhood of God, Um, that he's a father who's for us, he's a shepherding father, our father in heaven is faithful, he's forgiving, he's loving, he's a disciplining father, Um, he wants to shape us, uh, to bless us. He's a father who hears and listens and he protects and we could go on and on and just continue to write the narrative of how we experience the Father in heaven to us. But today I want us to recall a very familiar parable that implies all of that in in the picture of the good father, but I think there's some confusion we got to clean up before we just jump in and assume everyone's going to make the trip. Um, Some of us uh, have a problem describing God as a father. Uh, We make the mistake of using our earthly fathers as the example of what our heavenly fathers like. And don't get me wrong, there are some parallels. There's some very helpful things you can go, well, this is like that and this is like that. But, but it, and I, can, I think it can help us. But there is a breakdown eventually when you use the earthly model as a description totally of the heavenly model of father. You tell me what it is. There you go. It's our, our word, S-I-N, sin. All earthly fathers are sinful fathers. I'm not saying it's what we want to do, but it is a reality. And that's where the narrative breaks down. That's where the illustration breaks down. And some of us, I'm just going to say it, some of you have been so wounded by your earthly experience and you're putting that on God. And therefore, whenever you read or hear somebody start talking about the fatherhood of God, you kind of recoil a little bit and go, I just don't want to, I don't want to look at that. Let me just encourage you that you cannot allow the sinfulness of man to limit the character of God. You can't do it. This this analogy or this metaphor that God uses of himself as a father was not a mistake. It is not a poorly chosen set of words. It is truly what he wants us to know about him. He is... He is a perfect father. He is a good father. In spite of all of our bad experiences, he is perfect in all that he does. He's never abusive. He's never wrong. He never goes too far. He's never selfish or proud. He doesn't lose it with his kids. He never has a bad day. He never fails to keep a promise, right? He's never too busy. He always delivers and over-delivers. He's eternally committed to the best of his children and he paid the ultimate price for our ultimate joy. And we could go on. He is that. So whatever difficult circumstances we have in our past regarding Father, we can't put that on God. He's perfect in all his ways. And as the scripture says, he's altogether lovely in the way he is. So that is our Father. In Matthew's gospel, 
and we use it to kind of tease up this, this Advent series. In chapters one and two, Matthew is talking about the coming Messiah, the Savior born. In fact, we used Isaiah 7, or Matthew uses Isaiah 7 to talk about that, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. If you read on in Isaiah, in the prophet's writings in chapter 9, he will also say about this coming Savior, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let me just say, as that, looking at that one particular prophecy, um, it has confused people over the years. When you see that kind of narrative as the prophet talks about the coming Messiah, most of us don't have a problem with him being considered this wonderful counselor. Who, who wouldn't want that? Prince of peace? Of course we want peace. Great, great, great. But then you throw in mighty God, everlasting father, and then there's all these breakdowns, the way people respond to it. And you know this, one of the major hurdles in the world is to see the deity of Christ, that he's God. How can God leave heaven, take on flesh, and become like one of us and still be God? And I, I don't even to tell you, I can put all the cults you can find out there, they will not accept the deity of Christ. They can stiff arm God through that. That's one problem. The other thing that's confusing in this passage is to refer to him as the father. Now, I don't have time to do a whole message on this. I'm just gonna make some assumptions. You're at a church that confesses and believes in the triune God. Reveal one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Isaiah passage refers to Jesus as Father, so some have tripped over this and presented it as a way to suggest somehow that there's one God who isn't three distinct persons, but is actually one God who just decides to play a different role at different times. He just has three different hats. That sometimes this one God will play like he's the Son, and sometimes he will play like he's the Father. It's called modalism. God will act in a mode at different times. That is heresy. We believe in one God, three persons. I know it's confusing. But it is the gospel, it's the doctrine that we believe, okay? Um, so, Isaiah is the one who says it. So what's he talking about? Why is it confusing? It's, it's pretty simple if you to take the totality of the rest of the scriptures. The child would be truly God and the way to know the Father. Fully God and the only way you and I would ever know what the Father is like. That's what he's saying. It's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, that he, speaking of this Messiah, Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, get this, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Perhaps you recall in John chapter 14 when Jesus is having discussion with his disciples and he's talking about going and preparing a place for them and it was Thomas who said, we don't know where you're going, how can we know where you're going? And he's, uh, he says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it was Philip who follows up and says, well, show us, Jesus, show us the Father. That's enough. That's all we need is show us the Father. And he says this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What Jesus is talking about here is that you can't understand the Father without seeing the Son. God came close to reveal himself in the Son. He is truly God. He is the way just to say it simply, he is the way to the Father, we know that, and he's the way of the Father. It's the way the, the Father is. It's the Father's heart on display. 
The exact imprint is what Hebrews says. So do you get that? You can go back and listen to this later and decide if you get this, but that's what the text means. It's presenting him as the way of the Father and the way to the Father. So let's talk about the Father for uh, the rest of this morning. And let me start by asking the question, why do you worship? You ever thought about it? Why is it that sometimes I can stand over there and I can watch you and I see this deep emotion coming out of you when you're hearing a phrase or singing a phrase that I'm assuming just connects right to, to what you confess and what God is doing in your life. Why, why do we do that? I think in its simplest form, it's because of the greatness we witness in his goodness to us specifically. Like He's great. He's awesomely great. But I experienced that. He's been good to me. He's been kind to me. He's saved me. He rescued me. He's transformed me. We go through that whole process. But let me ask you this question, and just be really honest. Don't scream it out because I don't want to embarrass you. Do you ever feel like his goodness is in question? I know if it was on a test, you would write the right answer. I'm talking about how you feel periodically after a bad week. You, you blow it. You just, things you know you're not to do, you do. You end up doing a Roman 7 week. The very things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things I don't want to do, that, that's my life. And so we fail. We see our weaknesses right before us. Or there's something I need faith for and I don't have enough faith. Or I'm skeptical. Or, or God feels like sand in my fingers. I can't hold him. I don't know where he is. And there isn't a single believer that I've ever met and I don't believe they exist, who doesn't have moments in their spiritual walk like that. And you question whether he's good. Um, I watch too much football, to the glory of God. Just saying. And yesterday was kind of heaven on earth, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, although my back is really sore. But last night, I was trying to watch, I thought, the key games, you know. I, I was trying to watch... Uh, Clemson, and trying to see if Ohio State could pull it out. My son was home, and he wanted to watch World War II in color. So great, that's great, watch that. So I grabbed my iPad, and I opened up ESPN, and they have this thing called Gamecast. You know what I'm talking about? Every guy who's in church right now, when you're not paying attention, I know you're watching Gamecast. It's a little thing that you just hit the button, and a little phony field shows up, and then every kind of play gets seen in kind of yard markers on this field. All right? It's a wonderful app if you don't have TV. At the very bottom, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but there's a percentage for winning at the bottom of this screen. And every good play, every kind of win, every kind of touchdown, that percentage goes up for that team, right? Oh, they're going to be 59% winners or 89% winners. I think sometimes we feel like God has a game cast on us. Every day, we had a good day. Oh, it moved up. It's 80%. 89%, you're going to make it. Bad day, it drops way down. The thing about GameCast, it drives me nuts. It can be 30 to nothing in the fourth quarter with two minutes left. It will never go to 100%. Does that drive you nuts? It's 99.9. .9. It can never roll over. And we also think that's like Christ. It can never be enough. I can work and work and work and be great and be great, be a great dad, great worker, great citizen. I can read my Bible and study and pray, and it's never quite 100%. It never quite gets there. What if I told you 
that God's main concern isn't that you would get it right. What if I told you that his main concern is that you would realize how much you're loved and, and how much that love makes us right? Do you understand what I'm talking about? I mean, there's way too much in that sentence to preach it all. But God's love isn't just to get you from hell to heaven. It includes everything about your spiritual journey, how you become like Christ, how you're sanctified in the process, how you minister to other people. God is responsible for all good things. And you are simply the target of his affections. Isn't that what makes the love of God so profound? It's what makes it good news to me. It's the definition of good. And it's unlike every other relationship you could possibly know. It truly is, and I know you said this, and I know I've got to do some work on the phrase, but it's truly the only version of um, unconditional love I know. Now, some of you who are really precise in your doctrine will say, wait a minute, there's conditions. It's called atonement. You don't get out of jail free. Someone has to die. I understand that, but let's just take it from our vantage point. You do absolutely nothing to be loved. You are a sinner that deserves God's judgment, and Jesus stood in the way of God's wrath for you. You are woke by the Spirit. You have been made alive by God. You did nothing, dead fish. You're just laying there, and he moves on you. It truly is, from our vantage point, unconditional. I did nothing. It's what John says, 1 John. In this, the love of God was made manifest among you, among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, that sacrifice that atoned for God's wrath against us. That is Jesus, our savior. I think that kind of radical love was not understood by the people that Jesus was teaching to. And to be quite fair and quite honest, I think we need to hear it over and over again because we're slow to catch on to. So that's why we're in Luke 15 today where Jesus teaches three, and I'm certain they're very familiar parables to you that describe and illustrate the father's heart for his kids. So let's get to 15, and I will show you how personal his affections are for us. By the way, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he is being judged for the company he keeps, right? Verse 1, chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. <laughs> Isn't that the way it is? That's how this whole thing starts. When Jesus calls Matthew, Matthew goes, well, let's have, let's have dinner together. And he calls all his friends. And they were also sinners and, and uh, tax collectors. And just so you can understand, we're talking about in that phrase, the upper crust sinners and the lower crust sinners. Tax collectors, like upper middle class, they had a job. They had something to do, although they were traitors and rejected by society. But then the rest, robbers and thieves and prostitutes, the kinds of people you wouldn't invite to dinner, they were there too. Everybody was there. And then it says this, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Scandalous. Here's what they don't see, and here's what you should see. Everyone in this story other than Jesus is lost. Not everybody knows it. The, the uh, tax gatherers are rejected. And I'm certain there's a version of kind of self-questioning that goes on in their life. The sinners clearly knew that they were outside looking in. The Pharisees were clueless, although they had the same need. They thought their righteousness got them past what God expected. 
So Jesus tells us these three parables to make a statement about the love of the Father and how God feels about sinners, and this is key, how personal it is for him. Now, before I read that, um, I I, want to talk to some of you today who need to hear this because you have got all wrong. You actually think of him as a distant God. You think of him as someone who is distracted with bigger things than you. You have disappointed him, so you think he spends his time disappointed with you, and you think he's an angry God. You, you think that he's a God who can't wait to crush you, expose you, embarrass you. You know that. You think you're happy that God, when God brings trouble your way, if God brings trouble your way, because you know you deserve it. It's how you feel. You might even be thinking that he's out to get you. Well, then if that's you, really listen to these stories. They were scandalous in that day, far more than I can create in this moment because we're too familiar with them, but they are. Let's look at two of them quickly, chapter 15, 3 through 10. Okay, so remember who's there. We got tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees. Everyone's a sinner, everyone has a need, and then he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, that's not suggesting a third class of people, like there's some people that are righteous enough. That, that phrase simply refers to people who don't think they need to repent. That's called self-righteousness, but that's what he's talking about. Look at this second parable. Or what woman having 10 silver coins? This would be kind of like an engagement dowry, an engagement ring, okay? If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I can't imagine what they're doing with these stories. I gotta believe the reason why we have the next stories because they weren't quite getting these stories. Nevertheless, there's some things to be learned. Do you see how tenacious God is in his pursuit of you? Leaves 99 to chase down the one, tears the house apart to find the one. God is tenacious. He goes after that. It's personal for him. He knows your name. He knows his plan for you, and he will get you. He's unrelenting until you're found. It's like the old poem by Francis Thompson, He is the Hound of Heaven not in the bad way, not to bring harm, to bring joy and peace and rest. He comes and comes and comes because he has a plan for his kids and he won't stop. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it's not like small scores for him. This brings great joy to God to find the one, to find the loss. Great rejoicing, which should help us understand that love isn't a thing for God. It's not a job for God. It's his heart. It's the heart of God for his children, deep affections. Okay, let's jump to the one we're probably super familiar with. Again, I think Jesus brings it up because I think the people are hard of hearing. This one truly is scandal. 
in the greatest sense of the word, in verse 11 of chapter 15, Jesus starts a discussion about the lost son now to describe the father's heart. 11, 12, it says, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And this is a father, he divided his property between them. This is the equivalence of saying, dad, I wish you were dead. In any culture, in any day, this is offensive. You don't take inheritance prior to when it's time. And the, and the son clearly demonstrates no respect, no interest in the father, no relationship desired from his father. Just give me stuff. Give me my blessings. Give them to me now. Now, do you see how merciful the father is? Because the next sentence should say, and dad rose up and smote the young man. It's what it should say. But it doesn't say that. At a minimum, he should reject him. If he was going to be rejected, he could just say, well, then I cut you off with nothing. But he gives him everything. His love compels his mercy. Perhaps you've heard a description of mercy, how it goes. And if you lay it out like this, you keep going, wow, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Justice, that's a hot term in our culture. Justice means you get what you deserve. Everybody wants justice. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve, which clearly the son is getting. But there's another part of this equation. It's called grace, and grace is getting what you don't deserve, and both of those things show up in this young man's life eventually in this story. Mercy, he doesn't get trounced by God or the Father, and ultimately he gets all the sonship. We'll go on, but do you need to notice how merciful the Father is? Look at verses 13 through 16. I want you to see how distorting sin is. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Do you see how, what sin does to us? How it distorts everything? We think like the younger son, oh, if I only had, that would equal joy. That would equal satisfaction. It all looks worth it. But what we find out, like he finds out, that sin just takes everything. It takes everything. He's not only penniless, he's joyless. It's taken, it's taken everything. And do you see how it degrades him? That's what sin does. Young Jewish man in a pigsty wanted to eat pig food. What do you think that means? Unclean to the tenth power. And ultimately what it does, sin blinds us from the father's heart. He's totally lost. Okay? Look at verse, the second half of verse 16. I want you to see how good the father is. Okay, verse 16. He was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
Do you see how good the Father is? Even the hired hands know the Father is good. He's notorious in his goodness. It's a reputation that everyone understood how great he was. I think the lights came on. You know how it says here that he came to himself or came to his senses? I think it came on at the end of verse 16. Here's what he says. And no one gave him anything. Stop for a second. Contrast and compare to how the story started. The father gave him everything, right? In spite of what he deserved, he gave him his entire inheritance and he squandered the whole thing thinking that something else would equal joy and here he is in the pigsty and no one, no one cared for him like the father did and no one gave him anything. I want you to hear this. The darkest place you can be is when you stop recalling the goodness of the father. If you refuse to see and know that he is good, well, it doesn't get much more dark than that. You're kind of like the young son in a pigsty. And I think there are many, many truths that we hold on to in our life, but let me give you two regarding this. There's always trouble, and most of it's self-imposed. You know this. And I don't care what story you find yourself in. Here's what you're going to hear next. The Father is always good. He's always good. If you won't recall his goodness, you will never go home. And home is a place of rest. Home is a place of peace. Home is where a relationship with a father is known. And all of that, this son is missing. So I don't want you to miss the father's goodness. I also want you to see that the father is always on the lookout. And when he rose, he came to his father and went. He's still a long way off. His father saw him. You know what that picture is. This is the father's perpetual longing and work to the return of his children. Always looking, always looking. It's the father's kindness, and we say this, that leads to repentance. In this case, the son walked away, and it was the kindness of the father that turned him back. That's the about face word of repentance, brought him back home. And when we're worn out by a rebellion, it's the recalling his goodness that takes, him, that takes us there. Father's always on the lookout. Do you see how compassionate the father is? Look at verse, the second half of verse 20. Father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father is more compassionate than we could possibly fathom. How would you feel, by the way, if you were the dad? Deep resent, possibly. You'd feel disrespected. You would know if father, your son doesn't care if you live or not. So where does this kind of compassion come from? The Father knows how you're made. No one knows you like he knows you. He knows your frailty. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what you can't sort through in your own mind. He knows what you long for that isn't good. He knows it all. And he loves you like no one else can. He has the only I will die for kind of love. To the nth power. I want you to see that the Father is in a hurry to forgive And the son said to him, now this is after he was being hugged and kissed by his father. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this 
my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they begin to celebrate. Do you see the forgiveness of the father here? How he embraced and loved his son? Nothing, let me suggest, nothing in your world forgives like your father. Nothing. In fact, you know this, you know this from experience. If you fail in life, what happens? You in school, you fail, what happens? You flunk. You fail a job, they fire you. You fail in your marriage, divorce. Do you want me to keep going? So many things, if we blow it, if we fail, consequence you can't climb out of. Only in the gospel, when you come home after failing God, does he throw a party. He rejoices in your returning. That only happens here. It's interesting, by the way, that you should note this, that the father never grants forgiveness. It never says it anyway. He goes right from this son's speech that he prepared on the journey home to the father kissing and loving him and sorting everything out and planning a party. Nothing is said from the father like, okay, son, don't ever do that again. One more time. Nothing. He never says he forgives. He just shows it in his joy. That's what we see. And the reason why is because he already knows why you're coming home. Because you already know. He already knows that you've concluded in your mind after a long wandering that he is good and your sin isn't worth it. And you already know he's a forgiver. And so he grants it in rejoicing. Our father is quick to forgive, but I want you to see this, how quick the father is to restore. Look at verses 21 to 24 again, just to get it in mind, because it's so scandalous to me. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this is where it gets crazy. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring in his hand and the shoes on his feet and bring the fat calf, kill it, let's eat and celebrate. My son was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. As close to him as ever before. The full robe of sonship, the ring of identity, full privileges to the celebration as son. There wasn't one thing he lost. After he came to his senses, God reestablished, the father reestablished him in sonship. If you want more scandal, you can go on to read about the son that's standing in the background watching this, feeling like he earned something, but that's another sermon. Let me just suggest to us, you know this, you don't work your way back into his good graces. You don't work your way into a relationship and you don't work your way back in when you fail. You simply rest in the finished work of Christ you repent of your sins and you receive what God the Father freely gives. It's not based on our effort. Fully loved, fully restored, fully accepted, fully forgiven, fully known. You know this. This, this story isn't just a cute story. It's the truth. It's how the Father God responds to us who walk away. And we do. I read to you earlier on that Isaiah the prophet prophesied that a virgin would give birth to a son who would be God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus is that one born to save his people from their sin. God, the son born in human flesh to make a way, who Hebrew says is the exact imprint of God's nature, revealing to us that he is a good, good father. What do you think the message of Jesus is? 
when it's all said and done, if you only take him as a commodities broker, like, he's going to give you something. He's going to give you salvation. That's clearly a part of the story. But you get restored back to your maker, who is a good, good father, who has good plans for you. He's going to finish the work he started in you. This whole thing is about the relationship he's died to make for us. And it's all about his fatherhood to us. Do you see? God with us. God with us as a father. Let's thank him for that. Lord in heaven, we are grateful. It is amazing that we can call you our father. Nobody knows us like you do. You were fully informed of who we are, our shape, and our ways before we ever were. And in your good time, you opened our blind eyes to perceive and receive Jesus the Savior, who makes a way for us to know you as our Father. God, I just pray that you would let that truth, that simple truth, yet profound truth, sink deep in our souls that it would work out all the anxiousness that we have, all the insecurities we have about who do we matter to and why do we matter. When we're loved by the Father, it's, it's more than good enough. So God, this Christmas season, God with us, you decided to come close to reveal yourself, your Father's heart to us. We can just say thank you. And we do in the name of Christ, amen.